With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better. And dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello and welcome to this week's Intelligence Squared podcast with me, Farah Jassat. And me, Daniel Ben-Koren. This week we interview the novelist Ian McEwen. It was Razia Iqbal from the BBC who spoke to him about his new book, The Cockroach. Daniel, what was it about? So it's a biting political satire about a cockroach who wakes up and finds himself in the body of the UK Prime Minister. Now, obviously, that is a metaphor for Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who, as you could tell, Ian McEwen is not the biggest fan of. And Razia Iqbal asked him his views on Brexit and about the current book. If you enjoy this episode, please do take a moment to rate and review Intelligence Squared on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to us as well. Thank you. We hope you enjoy. For those of our listeners who are in London, we're staging a big event next Wednesday, the 9th of October, with John Humphreys, the famous BBC Radio 4 Today programme presenter who's just retired recently on his life and career. That'll be taking place in central London next Wednesday, the 9th of October. John Humphreys will be interviewed by Justin Webb of the BBC. And if you want to buy tickets to that event, please go to our website, intelligencesquared.com, where you'll also find lots more information about other Intelligence Squared events. Hello, I'm Razia Iqbal, journalist for the BBC. Welcome to this week's Intelligence Squared podcast. You can sign up for regular updates about podcasts and other events at intelligencesquared.com. We'd really appreciate it if you could spread the word about this podcast by telling your friends and please take a moment to rate and review the podcast. It lets us know what you think and helps others to find the show. Today I'm here with award-winning novelist Ian McEwan. His latest book is A Novella. It's a political satire called The Cockroach. Welcome, Ian. Tell us, first of all, about the title, because clearly you are channeling Franz Kafka. Yes, indeed. It's indeed a novella, as is, as is the metamorphosis of, of Franz Kafka. Amazing how, actually, I looked it up, how short Kafka's book and what resonance it's had through the culture. 16,000 words. And it resonates like a whole literature. And, so anyway, its very opening sentence would declare to a reader that this is indeed a homage, tribute, and uh, maybe it's just a, using Kafka as a launch pad to get into a matter that's troubling us so deeply as a nation right now. And it says uh, that morning, Jim Sam's not very bright and particularly profound, uh, wakes to find himself turned into a giant creature. So it's a reversal, really. It's a cockroach that's become a human. And if you were a cockroach, you just have to think for a moment just how revolting it would be to be a human, to have a big slab of meat in your mouth with a tongue and, and a breath that comes out of only one hole and breathes down the length of your body. And also how unsteady you'd be on two feet instead of six. So I spend some time 
investigating the new embodiment of, of, of this consciousness. So a cockroach who becomes not just a human, but finds himself becoming the prime minister of this country at a seminal moment for the nation. That's right. An aide comes in and um, he, he gathers from her that he is the prime minister. That's how she addresses him. And she reminds him that he's got a um, cabinet meeting at nine o'clock and then a statement on uh, priorities of the government and parliamentary questions. And his heart leaps because he's come all the way from the Palace of Westminster and he and a million other cockroaches often sit through parliamentary questions. And he rather thinks he be good at it. Even um, He's quick on his feet, even when he's only got two of them. So he's looking forward to this. He's got a total cockroach mentality, even though he now has a human form. And and how long did it take you to think that this was the kind of image that you wanted to explore in this political satire? I mean, did you think about Kafka as you've been contemplating and reflecting, as we all have, about Brexit? I thought for a long time I should write something about Brexit in fictional terms. It always seemed too massive a subject to get anywhere near, you know. Half a billion people, uh, whole nations, diplomacy, economies, and anger and frustration and division. So I had no way into it as a subject for a novel. But I was doodling in July, early July, and I thought, I'll write a short story. And so I just thought, oh, I'll write a little reversal for Kafka. Uh, And I wrote the story in, I don't know, a week or so, 5,000 words maybe a little longer than that to do it, and then left it. I had to go travelling on the road, on the treadmill of um, explaining myself about my latest novel, an occupational hazard for all of us. And uh, when I came back, I found that this still niggled at me. It wasn't complete. And then I thought, it's going to be a novella. And once you have done this, made this premise, ask the reader to cross this line, which is a cockroach becoming a a human, then everything else follows, really. There's a kind of trick that Kafka plays, which I've admired all my life. It's completely impossible for a man to wake up one morning after uneasy dreams to find himself turned into an insect. You read that, but you cross that line, because it's stated so boldly, so clearly. Gregor Samsa's lying there, and what's his first thought? I'm going to be late for work. And what's so brilliant about that is you go back over the line and you're in the world of realism. And there's nothing else in the rest of that story, uh, apart from the fact that he's a cockroach, that breaks the rules of physics or or social reality. He gets an apple thrown at him, breaks through his carapace, it rots, he gets very ill, he dies. And right at the end of that story, his parents take his sister out on the tram line and rather moving ending. She stands up at the end of the tram line and stretches her young limbs and they look at each other knowingly and say, soon we must find a husband for her. It could be an end of a Chekhov story. And yet, it's a, you know, it's an insect, ill-defined insect. I mean, Nabokov said he knew what insect it was. I, I don't think there's enough information. And your choice of the cockroach? I wanted a creature that we generally thought was loathsome, uh, Uh, And I really wanted to write about something ugly and alien that has entered into our politics. I'm not saying that anyone is a cockroach in this. This is a, a metaphor. And the cockroach represents the spirit, to me, 
of what Brexit has come to represent. So let's let's go back a little bit and sure. just and, and just establish your position on Brexit yeah. in order to be able to understand. My position is perfectly clear. You know, I'm not writing a, a balanced piece here. Satire doesn't depend on taking in accounts from both sides. I think the referendum was a foolish mistake. I didn't. The idea of deciding our future on the basis of a first past the post poll on something of such profound constitutional consequences and uh, obviously uh, huge effects on our agriculture, science, everything that we can think of, trade, security. You can't imagine anything more profound. At the very least, and I wouldn't even have accepted this at the time, it should have been on a supermajority. You don't change your constitution on a couple of percentage differences. And politically, it's always taken on advisement as well. So a government could have said, actually, we've looked at it and now we're going to think about what we're going to do with the result. Yes, I mean, we'd we'd had a referendum just a couple of years before that on changing the voting system, and that was binding on Parliament. This was not binding, so it it was an advisory. But both parties signed up in their election manifestos, so they were sort of bound to it, and uh, so it was an expectation laid on them. It was perfectly reasonable from all those... Who wanted to leave? But the story has unfolded. I'm a complete junkie for it. I hate it, but I can't leave it alone. Uh, it's the first thing I do in the morning. Uh, it used to be Trump and Brexit, and then I thought, no, I'm just, I just have to do Brexit. So, so you don't, you don't particularly follow what's happening with President Trump, but you do much more in a minutiae way with Brexit. Well, I was doing Trump blow by blow, tweet by tweet. Now I just get the general picture from the Washington Post, New York Times, entirely partisan fake news, of course. Um, so I stuck with Brexit ad nauseam. And Do you I feel you understand it? I mean, I, you know, I'm yeah. interested in this idea of being an addict for the, the kind of structure of the new cycle. Yeah. And whatever you think about the new cycle, you're clearly drawn to it yeah. and it informs the way in which you are going to present this yeah. political satire. So do you feel that you understand what's happening? You mean in myself? Yeah, because lots of people would argue it's impossible to understand, it's impossible to predict, even people who regard themselves as analysts and experts. Well, I think it's been a pretty good time for journalism, actually, and I've been quite impressed. I think it's been a silver age, let's say, of long-form journalism about this. Uh, and I've become a wide reader of the press and uh, internet on it. And on the whole, you know, with some shameless moments in front of the Daily Mail and so on, but on the whole, I've been quite impressed by the general sort of intensity. Uh, but on the whole, I, I think by reading the, everywhere from the Mail and Telegraph across to the Guardian Post and all the blogs, that I have a fairly good idea of what's going on. And I don't think it's fake news at all. I mean, I think I have a pretty sense pretty good sense of what's real. Your question makes me wonder, yeah, what what is it in myself? What's going on with me? (laughs) It's just like a kind of, like, I got a kind of fever. I suppose some of it's to do with the sense that this has profound historical consequences for my children, for my grandchildren. Some anger is in there that I, I think of identity as a set of concentric circles. There's my own particular selfhood and then there's my family and then there's my neighbourhood and then then I'm an English novelist rather than a British novelist. But I'm also a European citizen and I feel comfortable in Europe and someone is just taking this away from me. 
and I resent that. Is there a sense that writing this novella, this political satire, has broken that fever a little? No, here I am, you know, fevering away in front of you, <laughs> simmering <laughs> gently. Uh, no, uh, I had a bit of fun along the way because it, you know, it, it was it's intended as a, a sort of humorous uh, take on this. Maybe there's a bit of relief, but I think it's the kind of the kind of laughter I have in mind is where laughter and despair meet. You know, I, because we've now reached a point, or I've now reached a point where I can't see any way out of this. Whether we have a second vote or we leave, I think we are now scarred. And I, I, I'd i love to be proved wrong, but I can't see us unifying at some point. I know politicians are all talking about... Bringing uh, the country together. together. Yeah, but they always be bringing the country together on the terms of that particular politician. Uh, I don't see... Well, I guess Remainers are a more peaceable crowd from my observations of it, being on all the marches. You you went on all oh, the yeah, marches, yeah, did you? Oh, yeah, all that. Very impressed, actually. I thought walking those two big marches, October and then, what was it, April, very hot day in April, I thought, this, actually, uh, this is my kind of England. And I also thought, if this is an elite, then we are a triumph uh, of a democracy and a meritocracy. There's 16 million of us in this elite not bad, really, but, but could lots of room for improvement. It would take the other 17 million with us. But in the last few months, uh, I have felt that we've reached a new stage. I have not heard a pl- even remotely plausible economic or other argument for Brexit. It has passed out of argument into something mystical. People just want it. They want it. Why do they want it? Because. Or because we asked for it or because you said you'd give it to us. Well, let's let that, that's, that's a very interesting point at which we can go back to the satire because there, there is a moment when the Chancellor of Germany asks Jim Sams why you want to do this to your country. And the reason he gives is, well, exactly that, because they want it, because we have to keep our word to the people, because yeah. is the last part of that explanation. Because, 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 and then the last because is italicised. And I think that's where we are. I can understand all the reasons why people would have wanted this in the first instance. Um, I think austerity had a huge uh, amount to do with it. I think that people who were suffering um, wage stagnation, long lists in A&E and fewer policemen on their streets and all the consequences of austerity... And then the slate of hand by which they were persuaded that this was somehow Brussels' fault. But we're never going to vote for the status quo. Why would they? I, I, I can understand that. But I also think that terrible lies have been told. And I think the lie on the bus about the NHS was a trivial lie, actually, compared to the much bigger one about sovereignty. Take back control, the Cummings um, little confection is really a statement about sovereignty. This is Dominic Cummings, who Dominic is behind Cummings. the campaign to, to leave. <clears throat> that very same man. What needs... What was missing? There's like a missing middle of take-back control. Um, is that in a sovereign nation that makes agreements, that, that signs up to the Paris Accords, uh, 
becomes a member of NATO, signs up to the Preservation International Treaty on the Seabed. These are all compromises with sovereignty. And just as on a personal level, if you fall in love, you compromise some of your sovereignty. If you decide to have children, my goodness, in return for all that happiness, you compromise a lot of freedom. In a community of nations, about 200 on Earth, in whom we want to live peaceably, we sacrifice, and we will sacrifice again, sovereignty as we go around the world, painfully putting in place all the trading arrangements that we already have with more than 70 countries. So I cannot any longer see any good reason to leave. But also I know now that if we don't leave, we will be a very embittered nation, divided. And if we do leave, we will probably spend a vast amount of political capital getting back to where we are now. And it could take 20 years. I'm 71. That'll just about see me out. I'm not pleased about this. Mm. Uh, well, it's very clear from your book that you're not pleased about it because the, 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 the theory around which you explore what Brexit is and how, how Brexit is being sold to the people of this country by the people who want to leave the European Union is called reversalism. So just explain the absurdity of that as you see it in the, in the novella. Well, it's not quite as absurd as you say. Um, so you, basically you just reverse the flow of money uh, you do a job at the end of the week or at the end of the month um, you turn up and pay for your job to pay for your job you must go shopping so you come away with goods and uh, and uh, cash at the retail price of all those goods you're not allowed to hoard money so if you find yourself with too much money you better train yourself up or work overtime uh, and so you stimulate the economy the problem, the real problem with reversalism is when you have to decide about trading with other nations. When Germany sends us BMWs or Mercedes, they're going to have to send us lots of cash as well. And when we send our stuff abroad, Cheshire cheese and bagpipes, we will have to send money with those goods too. And so far in the novel, it's not going very well. Um, the only country that signed up to a reversalism deal is uh, St. Kitts and Nevis. Uh, Small Caribbean island. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but there comes a point, a sort of Leninist moment, when uh, the government declares uh, reversalism in one country, um, knowing full well that when they see what a huge success it is, that all the other countries will follow suit. I wanted to have something as completely zany and pointless as Brexit, uh, but I'm not sure I succeeded. Well, you certainly sounded I... as though you had a lot of fun oh, doing it. Oh, it's great fun. But, you know, I've met one or two people who said, you know, I think reversalism could work. <laughs> 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 then I thought, I've screwed up. You know, it is not more absurd than Brexit. And now it's time for a quick break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, because whether you're thinking about challenges big or small, let's not dress it up, life can be pretty stressful. So it's healthy to have a place to discuss those thoughts and share what's on your mind. 
Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. We've heard from plenty of the biggest thinkers on psychology and wellness on this podcast, and it's clear that therapy doesn't always have to be solely about addressing some big scary trauma. It could just be a way to learn a few new coping skills and empower you to become the best version of yourself. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime with no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com intelligence today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P slash intelligence. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared. NetSuite.com slash squared. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, well let, let's talk about your reason for writing it in the first place. You've explained a little bit about the, um, the, the place that you find yourself in. But, but as someone who, who is regarded as a... You know, you've written novels that are regarded as state-of-the-nation novels, but you're not overtly political. No. A, a lot of what you, your concerns as a novelist are to do with uh, morality yeah. and philosophical ideas rather than politics. And, and, and I wonder about the, whether you feel that this issue has shifted what you see as your role as a public intellectual or not. It might have. I, I don't know. As I said, I... I sort of drifted into this, but on the basis of obsession. Obviously, I didn't need to do any research. Or this is one of those moments when you find out you've been researching all along. (laughs) (laughs) You were on the job, really. It it was such an impulsive thing, this novel. I I mean, if you told me in June I was publishing a novel in September, I'd say you've got the wrong person. So I, I didn't expect to be having this conversation with you about this. What does it change in me? Uh, I still feel that there's a Brexit novel I've got to write, which is much more serious, and um, I think the only way to write it is from the point of view of someone who deeply believes in it, and that's why I've got some cockroaches who... uh, So here's a Prime Minister, it's not Theresa May, 
Um, it's more a John Majorish kind of decent soul who tries to make friends with all sides and collapses. And so the cockroaches of Westminster, 25 of them, um, infiltrate the ministries and this particular cockroach becomes Jim Sams and he watches as the real Jim Sams uh, scuttles out of the room in cockroach form to make his way back to the Palace of Westminster. And he's there to really put fire in the belly, to, to really push ahead with this. Brexit is Brexit, you know, and get on with it, do or die. Pitchfork the incubus of the EU off our backs. When you hear a phrase like that, these are the very words that Boris Johnson spoke, you realise how puerile the level of conversation. This is an educated man, had a very expensive education, and is indeed an educated man, descended to the level of a block-headed populist, talking about shackles. Who was it? Which minister was it? Who uh, Jeremy Hunt, mm. who said, uh, compared the EU to the Soviet Union. I mean, the ahistoricism of that is, is repellent. But when you talk about a serious, a, a bigger novel that you might, or mm. another writer might decide to tackle on, on this issue, that it, it would have to be from the point of view of somebody who believes in this project, uh, such as it is, I, I, I wonder to what extent you feel you understand that perspective, because that's what we're all being asked to do all the time, that we have to understand the 17.4 million people who voted for this. I know. We're the, we are the herbivores in this debate, and uh, we haven't killed anyone yet. They have killed Joe Cox. So, yes, we are desperate to understand, and maybe we should stop. But I, I don't read Brexit columns saying we've really got to try and understand the Remainers. You know, why is it they're so attached to you? You don't see pieces like that. They're much more abusive. And so if you're accusing me of an excess of generosity, then thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> Let me rephrase the question. <laughs> I, I said right at the beginning, I understood why lots of people in the North Midlands, northeast, northwest, uh, were not about to go and... Um, vote for the status quo as my brother-in-law said they pressed the fuck it button because they weren't happy with their lives the great trick of Brexit, of persuading people decent people to get so fired up about it, was that everything that was wrong with the British state the colossal disparities of wealth the huge divisions between the southeast and the rest of the country many other matters of opportunity and education, all the things we've talked about, that were the fault of the EU. And it's a massive lie. When Boris Johnson gave his priority statement to the House of Commons, and he gives a list of all the marvellous things that were going to follow when we left, we're going to be the centre of battery technology and the electric plane, and we're going to solve the differences of disparities of income and so on, north-south, all of that, and green, we're going to be green. There was not one of those aspirations that could not be pursued um, within the EU. There's not one single thing. It was not the EU that said, you must really try and make the rich a bit richer. And can we please make the southeast much more sort of attractive than everywhere else? And could we please invest a lot more in London than, than Newcastle and Birmingham? So we... I, I think there is a duty to try and... First of all, I think you've got to deconstruct the lies. And I think the biggest lie was the sovereignty lie. 
But then you have to look at immigration, which I think is a, a really interesting question. The EU had a perfectly sensible law that when you had a new country come in, like all the accession countries, you waited seven years before you switched on the free movement of labour button, as it were. All of the EU did that, except for Britain, Sweden and Ireland. As a consequence, we had a massive influx of Poles and uh, and others. And when people in the North East and the North Midlands got a bit shirty about getting school places or too many people in the doctor's waiting room, people down south said you were xenophobes, and they didn't listen. But that was the British state that had done that. It was not the EU that said, a million Poles, please proceed to Wolverhampton. And again, something has been deflected, something that was not Brussels, it was the British state or the British government. It It was our patterns of how we... What is exposed for us is... What a frail state our democracy in was in any way. What a terrible situation we were in in, in terms of uh, distribution of income. I mean, obscene disparities now of wealth that's continued since the crash. In fact, even got worse or better. We'll talk. Well, well, let's talk about the frailty of democracy because we're, we're speaking on the day when the Supreme Court has issued a decision that uh, Boris Johnson's um, decision to prorogue, suspend Parliament was unlawful and that he did not present the case to Her Majesty the Queen in the way that deems it to be lawful. That suggests that actually this democracy is pretty robust. That suggests that the separation of powers between the executive and the, and the judiciary are absolutely intact. And, and surely that's a really good thing. It's a sign of not, not a frail democracy at all. Four hours ago, I punched the air for that very reason. I happen to have, excuse me for name dropping, but I happen to have dinner two nights ago with the president of Iceland. And, I, and he's a history professor and he was voted for and he's the head of state. And I said, do you have to do much? And he said, well, I have to do a lot of ceremonial stuff, but if I would only have to do something if there was a constitutional crisis. I'm not a royalist, but I'm not a particularly strong anti-monarchist. But I would, if in other world, I would prefer that we had a Mary Robinson or whoever to come and play the role. But we do have an exceptional queen who's, who's lived through many, many prime ministers, maybe 13, 14, 15. And I would actually like, I keep hearing this phrase, you mustn't drag the queen into politics. But I would quite have liked the head of state at that point when Rhys Mogg and whoever went up to Balmoral for the queen to say, five weeks? Why five weeks? Not feel the weight of uh, 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 of convention on her that she mustn't say anything at all. I would have liked to have been a bit more active and drag herself into politics and say, come on, Prime Minister, first of all, spell it out for me. Usually you only need five or six days to prepare for a Queen's Week. Why are we having five weeks? So I would like a little more active head of state. Um, the next thing, I mean, what was extraordinary, I think, in this... Um, unbelievably fascinating stories. When they came down from Balmoral and it was announced the prerogative of Parliament, we saw what, for me, it took me back to the old days of the Soviet Union. There's a special Soviet way of telling a lie uh, by a politician. So I tell it to you, this lie. I know I'm lying. 
you know I'm lying. I know that you know I'm lying. And I've got this little smirk on my face. And you saw it on the face of Michael Gove. You saw it on Rhys Mogg's face. Of course, they were lying shamelessly when they said, this has got nothing to do with Brexit. How could... How could anyone even begin to believe this? Well, let's talk about lying because, you know, not novelists are interested in eliciting the truth about the human condition individually, but also collectively, if you want to talk about a much bigger subject. So in that context, I wonder how you reflect on on how we talk to each other, not just as individuals, because we know that lots of people have fallen out over this issue on a personal level, on a political level, but the political discourse has been sullied for many people. I wonder how you reflect on that. Well, lies are very important and um, they are a kind of oil in the sort of wheels of social interaction. And I've thought about this a lot because I've published a novel about uh, a robot who could only tell the truth um, so lies are very important. If you go and see your dying friend, you'll say you're looking a bit better today. And if the person you passionately love comes staggering out of the hairdresser and it's a complete wreck, you say, it looks fine, it'll, it'll grow. Or, you know. I don't think the Remainers have told many lies. About this. What they have done on their sin sheet is they have not celebrated the EU enough and I think the campaign was lamentable there was not enough celebration of an extraordinary political entity probably the most magnificent uh, for all its faults, human institution many faults, but still one of the greatest achievements of mankind out of the rubble and disaster and cruelty, savagery of the mid 20th century to establish, to bind France and Germany together and end up with the Schengen group. Now, I mean, I cheer myself up by saying, whatever happens, we will still have the Schengen group. You and I will be able to drive all the way all around Europe, <laughs> even though we're not members of the EU. I was in Austria hiking a couple of years ago with a friend. We were going, we were going to go trout fishing and hiking in a remote part of Slovenia. Sorry, it was Slovenia. And we got in a hired car. I was driving. We were going to a very remote place, a little cottage to rent. And we were driving along, and I suddenly we both looked up and looked out the window. We're in Austria. And we both went, wow, how fantastic. <laughs> this was the Eastern Front in the First World War. It was one of the most, we think mostly the First World War in terms of the Western Front, but the Eastern Front was savage too, beyond belief. And we could have driven to Sweden or to Portugal. There's nothing in the United States that parallels anything like the diversity and richness of civilization of this space. And this space contains a lot of misery in its past. It has hit this extraordinary plateau of peace. And yet each nation, Slovenia is so different from Portugal, is so different from Sweden and Germany, even though it has a border with France, they are so entirely different. And you know within seconds where you were in another country. You do not have to sacrifice your national identity. You can keep your sovereignty. We needed to have celebrated that. So I made a poster. And uh, I'm terrible at art, but I made it on my iPad. And I'm hoping that some amazing graphic designer will come and help me. I want, <laughs> it was going to be like a Liechtenstein poster with cloud bursts of 
starbursts, sorry, of little slogans. Free roaming, cleaner beaches, workers' protection, environmental protection, animal welfare, all over the place. Things, you know, um, no visa, all... Uh, all the sorts of things that on everyday levels, frictionless trade, I decided was too much jargon. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, nor was I going to say ECJ. <laughs> but still, there were lots of things that once we begin to contemplate doing, say, a deal with the United States, we're going to suddenly remember that we've got all these things which actually are quite corrosive in a deal, uh, as the EU has already found in doing a trade deal with the United States. We needed to have celebrated those things, and our silence on them, a sort of apologetic silence, has led us into the state in which we're going into a com completely pointless self-harming exercise. Uh, you, you mentioned at the beginning how much of an addict you had become in, in terms of reading about this issue. Uh, how much have you spoken to people who voted to leave? Because it, in, in a way, I... When I've spoken to people who voted to leave, there's a real sense that that those who voted to remain think that they're stupid and that they were not just stupid but wrong and continue to be that. And, and I, I wonder if you've had conversations with people in your own circle and beyond who have either been able to persuade you of their view or whether you've been able to persuade them. Well, it's true, I do think they're wrong. I don't think they're stupid, but I think they're wrong. And I think, you know, this is self-harming. Uh, but to answer that question, there are a couple of very cherished friends who are highly articulate leavers. And I have avoided the subject with them because I don't want to wreck our friendship. And I worry about my own temper. I've had some discussion with my brother-in-law, who I love dearly, and we have kept the peace... But I have to say, it reminds me a bit of the Falklands War. The whole nation was for it, and yet I only knew people who were against it, apart from Christopher Hitchens, of course, who always likes a good war. But, I mean, it's interesting that you invoke the, the, the Falklands War, but because, I mean, there is, there is something about this that is unprecedented in terms of the yeah. divisions that have uh, emerged and, and the polarisation. And, and, and you talked about how politicians throw away this line of, you know, bringing the country together. I, as somebody who has observed as closely as you have the country in which you have committed yourself to living in. I, and which I love. And which you love. And I, I you know, I, I wonder about how how you how you think about those divisions now because you'll still be here i mean you talk about it still not being resolved you know in the next 20 years or whatever but but you will continue to observe what's mm. happening and and mm. and i wonder what you think about it whether there's whether there's sadness or or a sense that um that actually it's it's possibly cathartic maybe this is a country that needed to have this fight with itself do you remember the accounts of um, when evacuees um, st were streaming out of London to go and live in the countryside. I mean, there have been many memoirs of people. I mean, I wasn't alive at that time. Um, and the country discovered itself in the most extraordinary way. Kids were out in the country who had never seen a cow, never used a knife and fork who were completely feral, filthy, never brushed their teeth, had poor language skills. And the matter was raised in Parliament. And there was a very important discussion where it seemed as if the nation 
had suddenly arrived in front of a mirror and seen itself. Is this such a moment? Well, your question, which I think is an extremely good one, is it takes me back to the point at which I said I would have to occupy the state of mind of a Brexiter to write a novel. It, it would be pointless just becoming me moaning on about all the lies told and, and the rest of it. I'd have to get in. I'd have to find that out, really. James Meek wrote a lovely book going around talking to fishermen in Grimsby and people in Wales and actually um, reading him on that, I thought, am I... The thing is that James is not only a very good novelist, but he's an exceptionally good journalist, far better than me. I'm not sure I'm all that good at getting people to talk to me without me kind of getting impatient. But that's why I think that there's only one way to do it. You have to get into the mindset of what it would be like to really want to leave the EU. But even as I say this, I think, but it all seems so confected. Go back a few years when we're all feeling rather happy and proud of ourselves. I mean, many people have said this after, after the, the Olympics. After the Olympics. Was anyone talking about Brexit? Were they saying what? If oh, Yeah, that was the games were great, but if only we'd left the EU, I'd feel so much better about it. No one was talking about it, except for a handful of right-wing politicians. So how is it that this is the screw has turned? That, well, that's in, the in interesting a very thing. large number of people. An incredible number of people. So the last time I saw it, it was like 38% of people polled said they would want to leave without a deal. This is not that's just 38%. High, yeah. I mean, it is extraordinary. This is not how many want to leave. This is want to leave without a deal. Even as the newspapers are full of, you know, yet another bulletin from car manufacturers and just in time and all the jobs going, uh, it's got bigger than any economic consideration. Something has entered the heart and the brains of those who just say, from the street, you see, hear and see the Vox Pops every day. I wish they'd get on with it. Mm. I just want to leave. I'm tired of the whole business. The EU is standing in our way um, and they just want to leave and it's become as I said at the beginning it's become religious it's become no that's that insults, that's insults religion actually um, it's become mystical let's put it that way Wow, that's interesting. So when, when you when you talk about the novella and writing it as being a way of you channeling both despair and laughter, I, I wonder whether you're in any way sanguine about what might come, only because in the context of the cycles of history, because yeah. you you know, you could argue that this this will this will take time to resolve itself, yeah. but but there will come a moment when there will be a plateau possibly. Yeah. And, and I wonder whether you have any optimism. Yeah, so um, I've got a sort of mental list, like there's an old injury uh, in the blockheads, reasons to be cheerful. <laughs> there is, so I hear that, especially the oldsters, people my age, uh, the 65 and over, the, the age was a very good predictor of how you voted, and the old really let us down selfishly, the future which they will mostly not inhabit. And they want to go back to, I don't know, some imperial past or memories of the 50s and I think to myself well certain things have happened in my lifetime that have been so glorious and you can never undo them and it's an ongoing process and the first thing I put my finger on um, comes out of having been over the last many many years endless gay weddings 
the transformation in social life to have so many gay friends living together very happily is amazing when you think of what poison it was to people before and how easily they accepted. That can't be undone. And that's continuing in this sort of sometimes very irritating, um, but still I think it's all part of a very young revolution that's guarding its territory, sometimes a little overzealously. But the whole LBGTQ and onwards turnaround in which I think sexuality will become like that famous scene in the first Star Wars movie, that bar, you know, there are elephants drinking with weasels. We'll all, (laughs) there'll be so many ways of being, having a sexual identity in the world, shamelessly, happily, and just as Alan Turing would have been amazed that he could marry uh, the man he loved, uh, we will really enter a new space. And I don't think Brexit can stop that. I think we're on a path now. This genie is out of the bottle. And I find it quite exhilarating. So that's one thing already. The one thing I hated about the EU was the common agricultural policy. I thought it was environmentally disastrous. I thought it was socialism for the rich. You gave money to people just for the number of hectares, acres of land they held. Michael Gove, not my favourite politician, had a very good bill before Parliament um, that was actually environmentally friendly. It was very celebratory, really, of the unique nature, certainly of lowland English agriculture, its hedgerows and boundary trees and so on. Where's it gone? Well, when Parliament was prorogued, it fell. And there are no plans to bring it back because it rather stands in the way, I think, of the Prime Minister's plans for a deal with the United States. But I still think, and here's my third thing that I think is a genie out of the bottle, seeing all those kids on the street uh, concerned about the climate emergency... I think that's unstoppable now. And I think it spills over into many other things. We could dump all the plastic we like into the ocean. It would make no difference to climate change. It's not a climate change matter. But they run in parallel. And I think also, however sad I am at the loss of Gove's bill, if we were going to leave the EU, I think there's awareness now that will be dragged behind the climate awareness uh, and I don't think we can reverse on that. And the final... Am I going on too much about this? No, I want to hear the final one. I've got one final question after that. My other reason to be cheerful is immigration. Already, this government has said, and presumably university vice-chancellors have been pitching in, we've got to have foreign students because they're a cash cow. We've got to have immigration, EU or Commonwealth, to run our health services, to run our hotel services. Someone's got to pick the strawberries. I mean, you are not going to see a quite mass of white faces as you would if you looked at a picture of Oxford Street in 1952. It's, it's not coming back. And thank God it's not coming back. We, there's no way you can reverse this. And when Theresa May was Home Secretary and she was going to get immigration down to 10,000 a year from the Commonwealth, I mean, even with the best hostile will in the world she couldn't do it and it's the same with the EU we need these people my son is a scientist one of his postdocs uh, is, is there courtesy of the EU and he's very worried what will happen I'm pretty sure I know what will happen it'll be negotiated <laughs> if we leave and with a lot of argy-bargy and political effort those postdocs will be here and working with us 
So there's, it could be that it gets a bit dreary at some levels, but not catastrophic. And on the social level, we will never go back on all those things I've just mentioned. Are you glad you wrote this? I mean, did it feel in any way that it was a book that you needed to write? It's cathartic. I've been asked this, and I... No, I mean, I had sort of fun writing it. Reversalism was fun. There is a sort of shrugging something off at first. But it was when I'd finished, uh, which was not very long ago, I think I handed it in September the 5th. I mean, publishers did an amazing job to turn it around so quickly. I was then back on the sort of cold face of the next story. and I Which could be that Brexit novel? It, no, but I mean the, the Brexit story. Sorry, I was back oh, with... Back on, you know, back on the news agenda. Gloomily listening to the Today <laughs> programme at six in the morning, gloomily looking at the Telegraph, Guardian, Times, sometimes the Daily Mail just on the website just to get a taste of it. But certain things are not going to change, so that, that's very important. Uh, and perhaps, too, to come back to something you said, which I thought had a kind of shred of hopefulness about it, that that it has held up a mirror to ourselves. It m- might prompt the right kind of people, at least, to start reflecting on the British state and how we've let its mechanisms uh, grow rusty. We probably now need a written constitution. I mean, this has really shown us that we... We were floundering. I mean, when I was in Iceland, sorry to come back to Iceland, <laughs> people were saying, well, you don't seem to have any rules. And when I was writing this novel and I was trying to... Uh, proroguing had just been mentioned and I was very interested. On the last day in front of the Supreme Court, the government's lawyers said, proroguing is like for five weeks is perfectly acceptable because other people have done it for political purposes. John Major did it, and then someone did it in the 1940s, and someone did it in 1926, Baldwin, I can't remember. And I thought, oh, I got something right, because I didn't use proroguing, I used pairing. When an MP has to be away from the House, a government MP on the government backbenches usually pairs up with an opposition person, they both agree in a kindly, courteous way to both not attend, so the vote's not affected. And I have a plot whereby the government takes 40 his MPs abroad and then sneaks them back last thing, doesn't tell the opposition and gets its bill through. And when Jim Sams, the cockroach prime minister, is being questioned about this, he says, you have to understand that we have this pairing arrangement and we have a glorious, long tradition of cheating. Just, and I thought, yeah, well, that was the argument the government lawyer was making about proroguing. If John Major prorogued for political purposes, for his own favour, it was wrong. It's not saying, oh, well, it's fine. We, we live by a, a sort of cumulative common law by which anything wrong becomes right if we do it often enough. But I thought, God, do we need a written constitution? What a mess. So there is a possibility, and I agree with you, that we might, if we found the right kind of government that would come out of this, that, I mean, I feel disenfranchised at the moment. There's no one I particularly want to vote for. I don't think... I mean, I've voted Lib Dem in the past. I've voted Green and voted Labour. I'm a bit queasy about pressing the button on revoke, assuming that Swinson ever, you know, got a... Revoking Article 50. Revoke Article 50 and the whole whole nightmare would be over and we could just go back to where we were in 2012. Uh, I think if we're going to reverse it, if it's ever going to be possible in the second vote, it does need the legitimacy of, of, of people going to the polls for it. Ian McKeon, thank you so much for speaking to us. It's a real pleasure. Thank you.